in a world where most Catholics have lost their way and eternal life hangs in the balance. A website arose to face the challenge of our darkest hour. One website with one mission and one desire to restore Catholic tradition, rebuild Catholic culture, and help the faithful prepare for and survive the gathering storm. That website was known only as One Peter Five. But with the forces of darkness and rising expenses gathering on all sides, the cause was destined to falter without your help. Please visit onepeter5.com forward slash donate today and make a tax-deductible contribution. The success of our mission depends on you. Coming soon to a computer near you, this fundraising event is not yet rated. Hello and welcome to the 1 Peter 5 podcast, episode 21. Today, I try to talk to Hillary White while she's busy chewing. All right. You steal away and I'll eat my omelet. Okay. Omelets are good for podcast sounds. <laughs> we talk about Hillary's journey from Canada to England to Rome to Norcia, cancer, the synod, and the real Benedict option. All this coming up next. You're listening to the One Peter Five Podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. Hi there. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Steve Skojek. I'm your host. And I want to give you some background on today's podcast. First of all, this is a podcast that is not primarily about the Synod. You may be relieved to hear that, but I thought we could all use a break. This is, in fact, a podcast that we actually recorded a little over a month ago, and it got shelved for various reasons, and we're coming back to it now at the midway point in the Synod because, well, it's just nice to talk about something else on a Friday. My guest on today's podcast is Hillary White. You may know her name. She's been blogging for ages at Orwell's Picnic, she wrote for over a decade for LifeSite News. She is a contributor to both 1 Peter 5 and The Remnant, and she is most recently the creator of the Synod-specific website, What's Up with the Synod. But that's not going to be the principal focus of our conversation. It will come up because Hillary, Hillary, Hillary was in Rome uh, last year covering the Synod as a journalist, so she has some unique insights and perspectives to offer. The principal focus of today's episode is about her choice to go full Benedict option. And by that I mean she lives in Norcia, just up the street from the Benedictine monastery that was created in the very same place where St. Benedict grew up, started out of his old family home. So she took the Benedict option to an extreme. And her journey started way back in Canada, went through England, stopped in Rome, spent some time with cancer and journalism, we'll talk about those both, and then finally led to this, which Hillary's convinced is most likely the last place she'll ever live. It's an interesting story, it's an interesting journey, and we hope that you enjoy this interview. 
Welcome to the podcast, Hillary, who is eating an omelet. I'm, I'm eating an omelet, yes. Well, more of a fritata kind of thing. Anyway, I'm starving because I spent the whole day today getting caught up with all of my my putting up of food for the winter. Like a squirrel or a chipmunk. Uh, yes, yes. Like the ants in the story of the ants and the grasshopper. So before we get to why you're doing the food prep, which I actually do want to talk about, um, let's give the listeners some background for those who don't know you. So we've been internet friends for a really long time now, probably what, 12 years ish. Oh, yeah. About 12 years. And was... Go ahead. <laughs> no, just since I was younger. And, yeah. You know. We were all younger then. <laughs> uh, but when we first came into contact, you know, blogging was kind of a new thing. And at the time, if I'm not mistaken, you were living in Toronto, Canada near an oratory? Uh, yes, Toronto, Ontario. Yes, to be more specific. Yes, uh, yes near the oratory. I think there's only one in Canada. There is only one in Canada. Well, there's only several people there, so... Uh, at the oratory? No, just in Canada. I've driven across. It's terribly yes, empty. that's true. Um, and in fact, name somebody that you know from Canada. I'm sure I know them. <laughs> So, how then did your journey lead you to Italy, and how long have you been there? Oh, golly, that's a long story. Um, oh, dear. Uh, yeah. I've been in Italy since 2008, and I came here after spending a year in England. Uh, I had intended to go back to England permanently, because it's the, it's the only part of, my, of the world where there are any relatives of mine left. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of got there and found out that things in England were a bit worse than I was expecting. Is someone attacking your microphone? Mm. Sorry, I'm carrying my computer around while I go into the kitchen and get another glass of this fabulous elderflower shampoo. <laughs> I, feel, <laughs> I feel like I'm at a disadvantage here. I, my bourbon glass is empty. It's, hey, a little, it's a little earlier here in the United if States. I could beam one through the internet for you. I may have to go through my cupboard and look for something here shortly, but for now, for now, in solidarity with Pope Francis, I am drinking mate tea, <laughs> which is actually quite nice. Uh, so I'm told it's tea. It's a, it's right? a little weak. It's sort of like an herbal. It's, it's reminiscent of maybe like a, a green tea mixed with a chamomile kind of flavor, but it's not bad and it's got a decent caffeine kick to it. So. <laughs> Well, maybe I'll try it. I'm sure it's. It, it, I know that it's suddenly become available on the menu in my favorite tea shop in Rome. So the next time I go down to the city, I'll give it a go. But you were talking about how you wound up in Italy after going to oh. England. England was the stop. Oh yeah, England was the stop, and I wish that it could possibly be the permanent resting place. But um, there's so many problems with living in Eng- England. It's it's hard to even know where to begin. Uh, from a Catholic standpoint, it's very, very hard to be a Catholic of any sort of, I won't even say traditionalist mindset, but an orthodox mindset. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and um, I lived in the country in the middle of nowhere in North England, so it's not everybody who goes to England kind of lives in London. I hated London at first sight and never, ever want to go near it again. My family lives in Cheshire. Um, which is a county close to the Welsh border between Liverpool and Manchester, and it's in the middle of nowhere in the country. Sure. All 
beautiful old winding country lanes and hedgerows and, you know, it, the place looks like every BBC historical novel <laughs> adaptation you've ever seen, that's Cheshire. And that, I just took one look at the place and just thought, oh my gosh, I just I come home. This is where I belong. It's my natural habitat. And that's where my family is, the, the last vestiges of of my relatives all live in this little village called Tattenhall in Cheshire, about not miles south of Chester. And uh, uh, it was a funny feeling because I hadn't actually lived in England since I was a small child. And everybody I talked to, uh, my, my aunt and my uncle and my cousins and all the people I met in the village, it just they all said the same thing. They said, they said it's, it's like you never left. It's like you're absolutely naturally, this is your culture. This is where you're from. Right. And that's what I felt when I was there. That was where my genetic roots were. And your social roots, really. Yeah, well, and I didn't notice, I didn't realize, having been raised outside of that environment, um, I didn't know where it had all come from. And then suddenly I'm surrounded by people who have the accent of my childhood, right? The the Cheshire accent, which I won't even try to do right now, (laughs) Um, but which did come back for me a little bit, not that they would have noticed, but other people noticed. Um, but all the little things, like all those little un, unrecordable cultural ticks that you don't even notice you have, <clears throat> that set you aside, uh, apart from uh, the people I, I was grew up around. And I never could understand why, even though I lived most of my life, on the west coast of Canada, why I felt so out of place. Mm-hmm. I knew that that was not where I was from. And um, even though I didn't have very much memory of life in Britain. And as soon as I got back, it was just, it was like, yeah, I had found the jigsaw puzzle slot that I was created to fit. Except? Every cultural thing, every, every cultural thing you can imagine. And a whole bunch of things that you probably could never think of that were just semi-conscious. Except the faith is gone. Right. And I remember you writing about it. I mean, you were so happy. You would just write about the, the miserable weather and how happy it made you, which I understand. I'm I'm of the same temperament. So um, it, it, it clouded over in rain today, and I'm looking out the window now at the last of the dying light. Uh, in the valley, and most of the valley is covered with mist and clouds, and it's it's, it's starting to feel autumnal out there. The leaves are starting to turn, and it, it, it's just sounds pretty incredible. From, from the pictures I've seen, it's beautiful there. So, let's talk about. So, how long were you in England? I can't remember. Was I, it a was year? It exactly one year. Okay. And it wasn't nearly enough. I mean, I yeah. And anyway. then you went to Rome. Well, it became increasingly difficult to um, find a place to go to church, even on a Sunday. Um, there was the little, I used to call it the hobble, this little brick thing that was built like a garage <laughs> in the village mm-hmm. where, God bless him, this poor old 68er hippie priest used to come in his Birkenstocks, I'm not joking, and preach to us a about Mahatma Gandhi and oh, I don't that's know, lovely. Sir King or Nelson Mandela and stuff. 
And it just didn't matter because nobody was there for the for the religion. There was the place was always full of middle aged housewives, local Catholic ladies, and their spoiled children. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. They were kind of spoiled. And um, <laughs> I would go in. I'm used to at least a modicum of a conservative mindset in a church, which is to say a religious mindset. So I would go in and I would, and everybody was there and they were talking. They would just talk, 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 talk without cease. There was not one second of silence before the mass started. And it was, you know, it was polyester, green polyester carpet and fluorescent lights. And it was a disaster. And um, but on the occasions when I couldn't get into Chester, there was a better church in Chester to go to, but it was difficult to get there. I was in the middle of the country, didn't have a car, no buses on Sunday. So, you know, so I would go there when I had to. And one day I would sit in the back and I would wear my mantilla and I would read my book and I would be all cranky. <clears throat> I'm sure you could hear my teeth grinding all the way in Manchester. And one day this... Very lovely young lady uh, in her early 20s, obviously, came up to me, saw the mantilla, introduced herself and said, my family and I usually go to traditional Latin mass. Would you like us to give you a lift? Are you interested? Wow. Yeah. You heard the angels singing. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, it didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't a sure thing. It was always. It wasn't every week. It was. It just continued to be a big, big struggle, and that was at the time before before things had started to turn around a little bit in Britain. Well, in that part of Britain, this was um, before Samorum Pontificum, right? No, no, just after. Just after, just, okay. And uh, um, that was at the time when the bishop, the local bishop of Shrewsbury, who was no longer there, had this rule about the. Seriously, it was a rule about the old mass which was, um, it, it was not allowed to be in the same church two weeks in a row. Mm. And it was always stuck in some little village parish church in the middle of nowhere in North Wales. And it was like an hour to drive there. Even if it was like a 10-minute drive as the crow flies, it was an hour to go there because of all the windy roads. And, and it was just, I used to call it the, the traditional Latin mass traveling roadshow. That, that sounds horrible. It was really, really annoying. Um, and, you know, there's this very, very faithful, very determined group of traditional Catholics in that part of the world that would chase, literally chase this mass around the, um, around North Wales, um, Central Cheshire, like between Liverpool, anywhere between Liverpool and Whitchurch. And, they would just sort of chase it down every week to go to this thing. They would send each other emails about where it was going to be. It was just... It was like a speakeasy almost. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, was certainly, it certainly gave you a good idea of uh, just how bad it was possible for a bishop to make, to make it, to, how hard it was a bishop could make it if he really was determined. So um, I guess we sort of suffered a little persecution in that case, but... Eventually, it just became unsustainable. And LifeSite at that time really, really wanted me to go to Rome to be their Vatican correspondent. And I kind of had an idea that that wasn't going to go very well. But anyway. Um, but you were game. You were game for adventure because that's I, so you. I, I kind of knew some people who had already 
gone to Rome and kind of lived there, and I visited a couple of times and made a few friends among the Anglo expats. And so, I mean, it wasn't I wasn't coming to a foreign country completely blind. I actually even sort of had a parish there already. And the choices were Liverpool, Birmingham, um, somewhere equally horrifying like Sheffield, London, or Manchester, or Rome. So you see, are you still there? I, I'm here. I've never been to any of those places, so there's only, um, <laughs> there's only so much I can imagine about them. But Well, can you imagine... Yeah, do you remember that Monty Python thing in the life, in the meaning of life, where they refer to Yorkshire as the third world? <laughs> it's very much like that. Dark satanic mills. Anyway, so finally, finally, the choice just became it became unavoidable, and I had friends who were trying to bug me to come, and LifeSite was bugging me to come, and I didn't want to go. I just wanted to hang around with my family, and <laughs> couldn't, couldn't really. Anyway, it was a big fight. And a big struggle, and finally I went over. So you arrived in Rome what year? Mm. I didn't actually go to Rome. I went to this little town north of Rome on the coast, Santa Marinella, which is a kind of a beach resort town, uh, which makes it very, very busy in the summer and dead like a, dead like a beach resort town in the winter, mm-hmm. um, where a large group of... English-speaking expats had kind of taken up residence, people who needed to commute every day into the city. But Sure, I think I knew some people who went to the Angelicum and lived out there. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a little colony of Angelicum people. So I took a place there and started commuting and got to know the wonderful Monsignor Barrero, who ran, at that time, ran the Rome Office of Human Life International. Okay. He very, very kindly gave us office space so I could work in the city very close to the train station. It was just a very good setup. And then, and that's, I mean, we just sort of plowed through from there. And, and that was where I experienced the whole transition from the second half of Benedict's reign, where things were still pretty, frankly, they were pretty hopeful. And uh, that was where, of course, I experienced the um, resignation and all the aftermath. And, 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 and while you were there, you went through your own personal ordeals, right? I mean... Oh, cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Cancer. Yeah. Um, can- oh, cancer. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I actually kind little of... little old thing. Forget about that a lot. <laughs> it, um, I had Father Benedict at the monastery the other day saying things. He, he was, we, were, he was, we were just talking, and he was going off on some weird tangent about how much I'd suffered. And I was like... That's how much I'd suffer. <laughs> oh, cancer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess. Whatever. <laughs> but, I mean, the thing is, though, I think there's some irony. I mean, you go through the, it was, was it two bouts of cancer? Three, Three. cycles of chemotherapy okay. and four surgeries. Four surgeries. So you're going through all this. You're in a foreign country. You're dealing with doctors that don't speak the same languages. I mean, to me, that's horrifying. I mean, I've been to Rome a few times. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what happened. It was very interesting because... Uh, naturally, it's a scary. Is it was very very frightening. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'll certainly say that very easily. It was just a really scary pro- prospect. Just having cancer. I'm surprised I didn't just faint when they told me. And um, I I have a you know kind of a weird background where 
my family didn't have very much to do with me after I was a teenager, and I have spent most of my life kind of fending for myself. Certainly, I've had a much, at 49, I've had a much longer adulthood than most people my age. Sure. That. And um, uh, so I had learned really not very much to trust other people. I mean, to a certain extent, yes, okay. But when it came to survival issues, mm-hmm. you know, work, pay the rent, be independent, stand on your own two feet, run your own show, don't be in a situation where you could be over out of your depth. So I've, I've shied away from debt of any kind. Um, I've stayed away from well, from all kinds of things that might maybe be dependent on other people or sort of not not free independent independent. Right. And uh, all of a sudden, I was not. I no longer had the strength. Physically, simply did not have the strength defend for myself in that way that I was used to. Mm-hmm. And that could have been really terrifying, except that I suddenly learned, I guess I got caught, you know, when you do that stupid exercise in in high school. Other the trust people, falls? The trust falls, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you fall backwards and trust that people will grab you. Yeah. People around the world grabbed me, and that was an absolutely revelatory experience. I bet. Uh, certainly nothing I expected. Um, people said, well, why don't you... Well, we were spending a lot of money. My my friends my friends were looking after me, and that was great. Um, and, you know, they were at, at the stage where I was, I was unable to walk. Chemotherapy was really harsh, and I couldn't walk. I couldn't even walk around my apartment. I had to have a chair in the bathroom to brush my teeth... You know, mm-hmm. around, get around the apartment holding onto the furniture. So I, I had kind of 24 hour care at a certain point, but we were spending a lot of money. Um, it just required a lot of cell phone charges, and there were a lot of tests and things that were mostly covered by the health insurance, but, you know, fees and just sure. it, it topping up and topping up. And uh, uh, um, LifeSite was great. LifeSite was amazing. They, they, I mean, there was just there was no point where I was afraid for money, but um, I needed a bunch of cash. And right. people said, "Well, why don't you put up a note on your blog and ask for donations? You can put this PayPal button thing on your blog." And I thought, "Oh, I don't really want to do that. Uh, get into that kind of relationship with my readers." And then and finally, somebody actually just a priest kind of scolded me. He said, <laughs> "Why don't you want to let people?" Be generous. What's wrong with you? What is that? And I'm like, oh, what do you mean? Uh, <laughs> like, what, why, what's, what's with you? Why can't you just allow people to be helpful and generous and kind? And you've got all these readers around the world who want to help you, and you're not letting them out. Okay. <laughs> so uh, in the end, I think people actually donated. I, don't, I never really topped up the numbers, but... I think they, they donated close to 10,000 Canadian dollars. Wow. And that, that just boggles my mind to this day. So much so that we were able to pay all the fees, and one of the one or two of them were really expensive. I had to have an, a, a CAT scan or an MRI or something that was, um, I was told it was going to be 300 euros. It turned out to be 780. Mm. Um, so the, all that stuff 
all the people I owed money to, all that stuff just got paid off. And there was gap um, where all everybody I knew was going to be away in the United States and I was going to be on my own. So we ended up flying people over from North America to come and basically babysit me. Right. And they stayed. And my friend Vicky from Vancouver, from Vancouver, from the West Coast, came all the way to Italy to spend and ended up spending three months here. Wow. Yeah. And, and so that experience, I mean, physical pain, yes, all that sort of physical helplessness, blah, blah, blah. That experience changed me. I hope it changed me permanently. And I, I, people now say, oh, why are you so fearless? Well, that's why. Yeah, there, that's- there is something transformative in realizing that people <laughs> will do these things for you, especially if you're someone who struggles. I mean, you know, we've discussed this privately, but I mean, we're both fairly introverted, I mean, which is odd mm-hmm. considering the work that we do, but... <laughs> But I mean, there's that sense in which you become so reliant on yourself and you don't want to ask other people for help. And then when people go out of their way to help you when you're in these moments of need, it just, I don't know, it throws your whole life into perspective. It, yeah, it, it gives you a renewed hope for humanity. <laughs> yeah. And, and renewed hope. <clears throat> a new, excuse me. <clears throat> so you'll edit that out of here. No, I'm keeping it in. In fact, I'm going to make it louder. Oh, good. Um... <laughs> Maybe we could repeat it in slow motion, in fact. (laughs) (laughs) I like you. Why do you have any friends? Um, um, Of course, like I was an only child. My parents divorced when I was four. Um, I was raised by my mother until I was 15. Then I, I left home and came back down to British Columbia where my father and I went to a courtroom and he stood up in front of the judge and said, I don't want to look after this kid. Make her a ward of the state. And that was the last involvement I ever had from my family in my life. And um, an experience like that ripples out in your psyche. Yeah, it never really goes away. To everything. To everything. And of course, that includes religion. So I'm not saying that I'm completely cured, but that experience of being cared for so meticulously... It makes, tr- it makes trust falls a little easier. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> especially, even trust falls when we're talking about God. Yeah. And, t- and that's a big step. And he likes to let everybody... You know, go as close to the edge of the cliff as possible before he's like, just kidding, and then grabs you. Oh, so awesome. that doesn't help either. What, was it Abraham and Isaac? Little yeah, short? yeah. Something like yeah, something about that. I don't know. Something <laughs> with a knife, something with a kid. Yeah. Something yeah. scary and horrible. So, yeah, I guess cancer was scary and horrible. and um, I, But it's okay. almost like you went straight from that to being... I mean, you've always covered difficult issues. You know, we we have discussed it amongst ourselves as staring into the abyss. But, I mean, you went from the disease in your own life to -to face-to-face with the disease in the church. I mean, you didn't have any time to transition from one to the other. (laughs) No, that's true. The um, uh, recovery, uh, well, I had a few months. Uh, Recovery was long and difficult. 
I mean, just took a long, long time. I changed my diet. I did exercise. I did everything I possibly could. Just like sort of super loaded vitamins. Just pushed it as hard as I could to get better as fast as I could. But it's still going to take a while. So that took at least a year and a half. And then all of a sudden, I get this phone call. I'm lying down having a nap one day, one afternoon, as you do in Italy. Mm-hmm. And I get this phone call from my friend in Philadelphia who said, are you on the internet? I said, no, I'm having a sleep. And he said, get on the internet right now. Pope Benedict has resigned. Mm. I remember I, that day so clearly, too. And I was just, what? No. What? No. What? <laughs> no. And it was so hard to drill it through my hand that this really, really was happening. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was driving my daughter to school, and it was this really cloudy, overcast, it might have been a rainy morning, and I, you know, it was a long, it was like a half an hour drive there and a half an hour back, and I would just have the news on and the radio, and it was the same thing, it hit me, and I was like, hold on, wait a minute, turn this up, you know, and I just, I mean, it's never happened, not in our lifetimes, not in our great-grandparents' lifetime. And I think I'm not too far off the mark when I say that for... Catholics, particularly traditional-minded Catholics, um, Pope Benedict's resignation is one of those historical moments. It's like a Kennedy assassination, mm-hmm. yeah, a landing on the moon, or a 9-11. Yeah, it's on that magnitude. I would agree. Yeah. Because, I mean, and- remember the feeling that you had when he came out, when he was elected, and, and you thought, this was the best we could have hoped for, and we got it. When does that ever happen? <laughs> well, apparently, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and when that resignation came, of course, you and I have felt it, a lot of other people have felt it, that this was wrong. Mm-hmm. There was something gravely wrong about this. Not that it was a mistake of his, not that kind of wrong. I mean, like, wrong on a cosmic like scale. Like there was a disturbance in the force. The force. Like, yeah. like when Alderaan was destroyed. Like that magnitude of disturbance. Millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror. Yes, exactly. But that, I mean, that on one level, yes. On another level, professional level, that was all part of the job. Mm -hmm. So I have to say that one of the first things I did was call my editors in Toronto, as soon as the time difference had changed, and and said, how are we going to approach this? And there was... an aspect of the work to, to do that requires a certain amount of objectivity and detachment. And you just say, all right, this has happened. Mm-hmm. We have to report it. What are we going to say? How are we going to approach it? And so it helped a little bit to kind of get some, I won't say perspective, but to, to get some distance and objectivity about it. But yeah, it, it was a huge, huge thing. And and there was another huge thing. So talk to me, you know, at the, at your level of comfort in a in a public discussion. Talk to me about the election of Pope Francis. Well, I've talked about it. I mean, I've written about it publicly. My personal reaction to it a number of times, and you've certainly kind of led the way in in allowing people <laughs> to express this. And it's amazing how many people have had this ex- had this experience at that moment. When we saw him coming out of the lodge, this was wrong. Yeah. yeah. And. Oh, it was more than wrong. Yeah. I mean, if the if the feeling 
of you know Pope Benedict's resignation was was one of I don't even know how you would describe it of of sorrow and a and that feeling of yeah this is not right. This was an inexplicable and you know why not? I got nothing to lose. It was a feeling of horror. I mean, I had no idea who he was, and I was sitting at work um, at the time, and and I was you know I heard that it was going to be happening, so I was watching CNN on the computer in my office, and I remember when he came out, I had never seen him before. I had never heard his name before. I had no idea who he was. And I was filled with just dread. Dread. Dread is the word. And I couldn't figure out why. I couldn't put my... Like, how can I have a reaction this visceral to someone I know nothing about? Yeah. Um, I was in the piazza. It's a funny thing. I'd been covering the conclave. I'd been with a a bunch of other people who'd been covering the conclave. And... Everybody had that feeling of, gee, I hope this turns out okay. Mm-hmm. Everybody was like, mm, the chances seem to be fairly slim. And there was a whole bunch of things that nobody's talking about anymore, which is at that time we were talking about the 300-page document, the dossier on, on, the, on the gay subculture and the corruption in the Vatican Bank, that dossier that nobody Just ever disappeared. heard vanished. Um and, of course, the scandals and the resignation and the weird feeling that we all had about it. So everybody was sort of hoping that it would be okay, but kind of really not expecting it to be. And I'll tell you something I think that is, um, I don't know, obviously we've said what we've said many, many times, but it certainly seemed that the choice of this particular man, and as we know, we had a signal, we had signals right from the first five minutes, right from the get-go. The way he dressed, the way he stood, the way he responded to the crowd, the things that he said in those opening remarks, very significantly, who was standing with him mm-hmm. on the lodger. All those signals. Um, so we had an idea where this was going. And um, well, I got together with a bunch of traditional journal, journalist friends in the in the Borgo afterwards for something to eat and mostly something to drink. <laughs> and um, uh, the feeling that I had was that this was of a piece, that Benedict's resignation and the choice of this particular man were part of an arc. Right. One might say a story arc, if one were writing a novel. Sure. And that certainly it seems clear now, although obviously nobody has any kind of confirmation, but examining the things that he's saying and doing, it seems clear now that whatever it was that Benedict was afraid of, you know, the wolves... Came to pass. Came to pass, and that this is the result. Acts twenty twenty nine, I think, is the passage that references specifically those wolves that will come in among the shepherds and and mislead the flock and that is the feeling <laughs> yeah but this this pontificate and the synod and all the other stuff seems to be in the one thing that i'm really starting to understand about it is that it's all of a piece and so talk to me about that because so a year and a half later 
you're there with all the press at the Vatican during the first half of the synod when when the stuff is really hitting the fan. And that's a turning point for you as well, is it not? It was, it was, yeah, kind of. Um, we knew, we knew in general terms what kind of thing to expect. Of course, when you're, when you're going into something ahead of time, expecting things, even when they turn out pretty much as you expect, it's still going to be a surprise and a shock. Mm-hmm. And the things that did happen at the Synod, which we all know, um, yes, they were shocking at the time, but they weren't surprising. No, they were part of that same arc. Exactly. The whole thing is all one big arc. And this is the story arc, if I can call it that, that most traditionalists, the narrative that most traditionalists expect. Mm-hmm. And have been expecting it for a long time. And not just traditionalists, obviously. People people who we, who haven't kind of put it all together into one big package and called it traditionalism, certainly so many people are aware. Yeah. Um, it, it, back in the 80s, People like Anne Muggeridge and, you know, people of that caliber were saying, this is where things are going if we don't fix these problems. And right, course, it's not as if it started in this pontificate. I mean, this is just sort of oh, the... And this is what I, something I've been saying lately and I've been writing lately for The Remnant, is we really cannot blame Pope Francis. We cannot blame Jorge Bergoglio for being the kind of man he is and doing the things that he's doing. The situation in the church, and I guess obviously also the political situation with with the infiltration of Marxism and Peronism in, in Argentina, obviously have created this character. Right. Um, and and I mean, and the idea of the super council. I mean, which is which is evinced by the fact that every single pope who has died who lived after the council has been beatified or canonized. Oh, and that whole thing is just obvious. Not obvious. You know, four hundred four hundred years between Pope Saint Pius the tenth and the the previous. I don't even remember who the previous pope was who was canonized before him. Four hundred year span during one of the church's richer periods of history. Yeah. And, yeah. Funny. So we know Stunning. that this is a, a big arc of history that's happening now. And we know this because also because the 19th century popes and churchmen, holy churchmen, warned us about it. They said that the embrace of Freemasonic principles in the secular realm, in political life, will be cata- catastrophic. Mm-hmm. The popes of the ninth, late 19th century warned us against the incursions of um, what ended up being called modernism in the church would create this kind of catastrophe. And they, some of them were pretty specific. Yeah. About what in fact, we've, we've written, we've covered this to some extent at 1 Peter 5. And in fact, I'll link to some of those things on the show notes. But this is not... Um, this was not a secret. I mean, back in the 1800s, the popes were warning about the Masonic infiltration of the church. The very beginning of the 20th century, Pope St. Pius X was warning about the infiltration of modernism into the church. They saw this like a roadmap, like a blueprint. They knew it was here. Oh, yeah. I, I, I remember reading some of the reading some of this, and I'm not an expert. I haven't made a big study of it, but it, I, I just read some of it and just thought, well, this is what's happening right now. This is obviously the, the description, the roadmap of, of what we're seeing. And um, 
it didn't take that much to convince me. I mean, when there's evidence in front of your eyes, it's pretty clear. And then you have a, the authoritative voices in the church confirming, yes, this is what's happening. So, okay, let's work on that principle. But then we've got the problem of, because of the um, successes of Freemasonic ideologies, and later, uh, obviously, their offshoot um, Marxist ideologies, mm-hmm. um, and all of their offshoots, obviously, uh, we've got the problem, what I call the usual suspects problem, which is, um, it wasn't the devil, but the greatest trick that, Mar- that Freemasons ever pulled <laughs> I don't have to. was to convince the world that they weren't in the church. Let's just be honest. Well, uh, they don't exist. Yeah. I, I mean, they exist. Everybody. I don't know how it is in Europe, but I mean, here in the United mm-hmm. States, the Masonic Lodge affiliations are very open. I mean, oh, sure. People yeah. have little, you know, little emblems that they put on the backs of their cars. I mean, it's there, there's no secret. In Europe is different. Um, there is a political memory of what we could call the secularist wars of the 18th and 19th century. Certainly, the memory of, this, of the French Revolution is still pretty keen. Right. And in Italy, people remember what Freemasonry is and what it's for and what its goals are. And See, that's the thing we don't have here. People don't know what it is and what its goals are and what it's for. And so you can drive. I was thinking about this last weekend. We were coming back from a little out-of-town getaway that we did just for a day, and we were driving through Washington, D.C. at night, and there's the Masonic uh, monument to, I think it's to George Washington, but there's a big Masonic monument in Alexandria, Virginia, and it's one of the tallest buildings in the D.C. area. I mean, just this huge tower, and it's lit up at night. And I was just thinking, you know, here it is. It's just sitting right here, and nobody thinks about what it actually signifies. Oh, yeah. The city of Washington is like a monument to Freemasonry. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's sitting right there in front of you, and, and nobody has the first notion. And Europeans remember this. Certainly Italians remember it, um, because it, the the formation of the state of Italy was very much involved in all of that. Um, it required the secularists, obviously backed by the Freemasons, to actually physically overthrow the papacy like a conquest Mm. and what is not known very well by North Americans is very well remembered by Italians that there is uh, still a a political split between um, I guess what in the late 19th century were the supporters of the papal states and the supporters of the secularist movements Mm. And Italy didn't become a state until 1870, until Garibaldi marched into the city of Rome with troops to overthrow the Pope in the Papal States. Yeah, another Rubicon. And if you go now, if you get a good um, tour guide in, in the Vatican, they will show you the bullet holes in the walls of the Apostolic Palace where they fired on... The Apostolic Palace. Wow. The Pope had to flee Rome. So these things are remembered in in Europe. And it's funny, you talk to a North American about it, and they look at you like you're talking about leprechauns. It's just, it's such a part of the fabric of our society, but in such an understated way. I mean, the most average, normal person you could meet, 
I, I remember you know, my wife sells houses, and we were at some guy's house, and he had this really neat collection of you know, comic book action figures. I mean, an amazing collection, hundreds of these things from every era, and it was a really, you know, glass cases. He was a collector. He was just this normal, average guy who liked comic books, but he was in every Masonic association. He had plaques and stuff everywhere. I mean, it's just, this is the normal, average Joe that you meet. Yeah. You know, it's some fraternal, and I don't know what they think they get out of it. I don't know... I don't know why anybody would be so inclined to join one of these organizations, but they do. I, yeah, well, I'm not going to get into it, but I, I can kind of understand why. But um, Well, that was cryptic. Yeah. <laughs> it's also a sidebar, but anyway. Okay, that's fine. No, you know, because we do, we do need to actually, because I want to get to, um, you know, we, we kind of got onto this topic because we were talking about the Synod. But I want to go back to the Synod and, and how that begins for you, the process of what ostensibly we're talking about today, which yeah, is the I, real Benedict option. I kind of cracked, didn't I? Yeah. Well, we, we uh, have a tendency to go off track, but that's fine. When was the Synod again? It was October? October, yeah. We're only 40 minutes into this conversation. We'll get to the point eventually. <laughs> no, well, I'm very good at it. Um, yeah, the Synod was in October. And obviously, the period between Benedict's resignation in February and the Synod in October is a kind of a, an act in a play. Mm-hmm. And during that period, when it just became more and more forcefully clear what was happening in the church, and then the consistory speech from Cardinal Casper, and then Pope Francis' response to the consistory speech, and then the you know, and then, as we know, all the stuff that happened. And I... Uh, how can I say this? I don't want to... I want to be very careful not to disparage the work that LifeSite does or the work that I did for them before this period mm-hmm. or the work that they intend to continue doing and are doing now. It's incredibly important. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I don't... As you know, I'm kind of wary about talking spooky. Mm-hmm. I don't talk spooky about the faith because that just makes you sound like an idiot. Um, <laughs> and a presumptuous idiot. I hate that when people start talking, oh, God called me. Oh, yeah? Did he like, call you on the phone? Anyway, um, it seemed to me during this period, the period between the consistory and the synod, especially, that I was no longer doing the thing that I was supposed to be doing with regards to all of this. Mm-hmm. And as you know, and I certainly made no secret of it, uh, I had been aware of vocation from a very early age. I nice. wanted to be a Benedictine nun when I was eight years old. We- and then when I was... Yeah, I don't know how I knew, but... Yeah, I was uh, just going to say, I mean, considering your background, that's an impressive thing to, to feel yeah. called to. Yeah, yeah, West Coast hippies, who knows? Um, maybe I saw a movie or something. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> anyway, and I knew what nuns were. I knew what they were supposed to be. And I knew that there weren't any. And when I was in my 20s, I had looked around, it was before the internet, but I'd, I'd done some searches and discovered, started to understand how things were in the church and discovered that there was nowhere to go. And as you know, that's been an ongoing frustration for many, many years. I didn't get married. And it's not for want of offers. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you the truth. Um, 
had a number of serious offers uh, and turned them down for various reasons, but mostly because it never felt right. It never felt like the thing I was supposed to be doing. And I always had this idea of something that I was supposed to be doing. And until that block of time, until that act of the play between the consistory and the synod, I had known, I'd been very comfortable with believing that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing while I was working with LifeSite and moving towards whatever it is, you know, going toward to England and going to Rome and becoming more involved with the church and becoming more of a traditionalist and, and all that stuff. It was definitely all going the right direction. That period was what it started to nag at me. It started to just push on my brain. <clears throat> and by the, by the end of the synod, I, I don't know, I just maybe had this feeling that a lot of people describe when they were watching the Twin Towers fall. Mm. Just, what am I supposed to do now? Yeah, it changes everything. What do I do now? It changes everything. I know the world is about to change dra- dramatically, drastically. So now what? And a number of kind of personal things kind of happened at that time, which pointed inexorably towards move to Norcia, become an oblate. Which is a little weird. I mean, had you been out there? Did you... I'd gone to visit... Well, no. Um, uh, Obviously, I'd scoured the globe. I'd used the internet to turn over every possible stone looking for a Benedictine convent of nuns to go and live in that had the old rite, that did the full monastic office, that lived the Benedictine life in that authentic way. Mm-hmm. And didn't find one. I I know they're out there. There are some, but... You didn't find the right one, the one that fit. The one that fit. So, um, I'm very frustrated. And you and I have discussed this, and I'm sure you noted the tone of frustration in my voice. Yeah. What do I do? What do I do? How can I be called to something that I can't find? That doesn't exist. So, um, just at that moment, a friend of mine was having a little life, personal life crisis thing, and I said, well, instead of running off somewhere, you know, freaking out, why don't you come down? She was, she is from Estonia. Um, and I said, well, you're freaking out. Why don't you just come and stay with me? I've got a spare bedroom, and you can just stay until mm-hmm. you figure things out. And I enjoyed the company, and it was great. And when she got down here, she said, well, I want to go to Norcia because she had already started thinking about becoming an oblate there. And um, it was an interesting confluence of events because... I had been going around to various places and talking to various people about this problem. I'm now too old to get to really seriously consider um, monastic life. You know, at that time I was 47. Mm-hmm. And um, but the, the the call, especially after the synod or the build up to the synod was becoming like a klaxon in my brain. It was just, you know, this nagging, constant, do something, do something, do something about this. So I went to um, visit some, visit a, uh, 
a small community, an American community that was being founded in Italy. And I asked, I privately asked the advice of their founders. It's just a group of five sisters who came here from the United States. Um, the founders had been in the Poor Claire convent of Mother Angelica and had been Mother Angelica's close confidant for okay. 30 years. So this is an authoritative person. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, obviously Benedictine life is the thing that you're clearly suited for. Um, here's She laid it out logically. The, the problem is you're probably too old, um, also nowhere to go. Um, but the call won't leave you alone. She said, have you thought about being an oblate? And I <laughs> I said, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, well, I know these monks in Norcia, and um, I know that they take oblates, and that they have all the things you're looking for, and Norcia's a nice town. And she said, she came right out and said, I think you should probably move to Norcia, and uh, become an oblate, ask the monks if they'll accept you as an oblate, and then you can live in Norcia, and uh, quite possibly God has some kind of plan for you to found a community while you're in Norcia. And she's mm. just completely matter-of-fact about it. And I, I just sat there sort of doing the goldfish with my mouth. <laughs> no, I don't want to. Okay, I can accept this personal rule. It's written down on my Facebook page. <laughs> Never found anything. <laughs> Never joined yeah. anything. I'm ter- never- I am terrible oh. at that rule. Never found anything. Right. Um, so I, I kind of went home after that, back to Santa Marina, and said uh, to my friend Maria, I said, well, that's what she said. And Maria said, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then I got an email back from a priest, a traditional priest in the United States, whom I had basically laid out the same problem to. And I know they don't know each other. Okay. I know they don't know each other. And he sent me... That's your uh, prelude to telling me that he gave you the exact same spiel. Exact same spiel. Exact same spiel. In the same words. And to be clear, I, I mean, this story's writing itself. I don't know this. I don't think we've ever actually discussed this no, part I haven't of the actually story. told anybody because yeah. it's crazy talk. <laughs> Do you hear me? Crazy talk. That's when you know God's in the middle of it. No, when see, things that don't make sense work out, that's providence. I hate that spooky stuff. You know I hate that spooky stuff. That's all right. The you faith, get used to it. You get used to it. The faith is intellect and will. You adhere to the faith through your intellect and your will. And the spooky stuff can just happen to other people. <laughs> I think the spooky stuff's kind of fun, honestly. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> so next thing you know. Another one. You are third priest. A third someone priest. I, someone I knew in Rome. Not a spooky person. Not a, a nun or a mystic or anybody with any kind of pretensions to any of that stuff. And I asked him exactly the same thing. And he said, "Well, have you been to Norcia?" <laughs> so this is basically like the old story of the guy in the house, and the flood is coming. <laughs> and he, he keeps going to a higher floor, and people are going by on boats and saying, "Hey, jump in the boat." Maybe I should just ask some stranger on the street. Uh, <laughs> just go down to the piazza and pick a random person and say, "Hey, what should I do with my life?" 
And they'll say, hey, I know this great town in Umbria. Just kick the pigeons and they'll all fly in that direction. I got it. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. So next thing you know. Next thing I know, um, I get handed a 1,500 euro bill for gas mm. in my apartment. And they do this thing in Italy. They send you an estimate, a bill for the estimated amount that you're using. And then once a year or twice a year or something, they go and they read actual meter and then send you a bill, either give you a credit if you've overpaid or, which is much more likely, they send you a bill for the amount. Well, they didn't do this for the four years I lived in that place. So they, they gave me a 1,500 euro bill for four years worth of ketchup. That's fun. Oh, it was devastating. And I was so broke. Every last, I mean, I... I worked it out with the gas company and said, look, I don't have 1,500 euros. That's way more money than I've got. Can I just give you a bit at a time? And they went, yeah, okay, yes, that happens all the time. Don't worry about it. It's Italy. This is how things work. So, okay. But every last extra nickel I had was going into this paying off this stupid thing. And apart from that, the apartment I had, which was very nice in this town that was much, much cheaper than Rome, was really just beyond my means. I'd been kind of propping it up for a long time by basically pouring all my money into the domestic expenses and having no extra dough, mm -hmm. uh, which was a little frustrating. But So really, the apartment just suddenly became unsustainable. And I, uh, so Maria and I went came to Norcia during their Tartufo festival. Um, Tartufo is... Uh, what do you call it? Black truffles. They get, it's a big agricultural product around here. So they have a big festa every year in February. So we came up in February. I love black cool. truffles. That I want to go to that. You, you would love it. You would love it. This place is just, oh, don't even get me started. Um, so we arrive in the middle of this big festa and the whole town, because all the shops have got these little stalls on the streets, the whole town smells of truffles mm. and wood fired pizza ovens. And there's all these people, and everybody, you walk up and down the streets because they're having the Tartufa Festival, and there's bands and people dressed up as shepherds and accordions and bagpipes and dancers, and you're walking down the streets, and all the shopkeepers are handing you truffles and little glasses of wine and cheese and have some, have some wild boar sausage, and you go, yeah, okay, this is a nice welcome. <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty good. <laughs> And we get to know the monks, and they're like us. They're regular people who you can totally talk to without being guarded. And these so, aren't just Italian monks. I mean, the founder's are, from America, right? Yeah. They're most, well, they're mostly Americans. They're obviously interested in having Italian vocations. So they, they're, they all speak Italian perfectly well. Um, <clears throat> they've got one very nice chap who kind of took me under his wing from Indonesia, who's the guest master. And, but apart from that, they're all completely regular people. And the significance, help me understand this. So you have these Americans who come over to Norcia, which is the birthplace of St. Benedict. Yeah. And when do they found this community and how do they go about doing this? I can't even imagine. You know, they restarted monasticism in the birthplace of St. Benedict. I think that's kind of the idea. I mean, Norcia kind of asked for them. Okay. You can find this story online. Father Cashin has told this story a number of times, and he's on YouTube videos. And these are the guys who released the CD last year with the chant, too, which yeah. I'll link to. And, but and that suddenly, that suddenly hit number one 
<laughs> the classical charts. That's excellent. <laughs> yes, it is excellent. Um, anyway, yeah, Father Cashin, I guess kind of like me, was really wanted to be a traditional Benedictine monk. And he studied music in Rome and uh, came to Rome and met a bunch of other people who were keen to do the same kind of thing. Um, but we're looking for a kind of a permanent place to lay down roots. And it's one of these, Norcha calls. Norcha called them, literally. There was a petition that went around the town, a town of about 4,000 people. It's set in this valley in the Umbrian Mountains called the Val Narina, the Valley of the Black River, the Nera River. Um, where there was about 5,000 people in total, most of whom live in Norcia. Okay. So this petition was circulated, I think it got started by the mayor, <clears throat> who said um, the town of Nursia, the ancient birthplace of St. Benedict of Nursia, hasn't had any monks for 200 years, since Napoleon suppressed the Celestine Monastery here. And, of course, there's monastic, been a monastic presence way all the way back into the early Middle Ages. But they hadn't had any monks for a long time. And I guess this mayor just said, this is ridiculous, we have to have monks. So 4,000 people of the 5,000 people of the entire valley signed this petition <laughs> to wow. Rome that said, please send us some monks. And that petition ended up being the invitation to Father Cashin to found this community in 2000. So they haven't been there that long. So it's 15 years now. And then you show up. Well, you got there when? A year or two years ago? Uh, n not that long ago, November. Oh, that's right. It wasn't even because it was right after the Synod. You're right. Yeah. So we're actually coming up on the one-year anniversary of the first half of the Synod. So, yeah, not quite. Yeah. And I guess the Synod was what really did it for me, which is... I, I mean, I knew it was going to be horrible. And I'm so ticked with a friend of mine whom you know. She saw the Synod coming, and she called up a friend that didn't have to work the Synod mm -hmm. and said, hey, let's go to Malta. Yeah. <laughs> she ran, left Italy entirely, and went and had a holiday in Malta without me. But that's okay, because this all worked toward you winding up there. So you get to Norcia, you said November. Oh, yeah. And then, well, no, originally, uh, yeah, a couple of visits. And then I, when I was here, we got in touch with uh, a real estate agent, um, uh, a realtor, who, uh, uh, and just to find out if it was feasible financially. And uh, holy cow, um uh, I just can't, couldn't believe what I was hearing. Uh, spending more than 800 euros a month on a flat in Santa Maranella compared with an average of around 400 here. Hmm. Um, it, there was just, that was like the final thing. Just, and you got so much more space? It's about the same size, uh, but it's much nicer. Oh, it's nicer. Okay. I thought I remembered you telling me that you had more more space within the actual place, although you have the garden outside and yep. everything, right? That's yeah, and I've got this view of the valley that goes down all the way to the end of a fireplace and a bathroom, bathtub. Italian bathrooms don't have tubs. I don't know why. Anyway, I'm being English. I need a bath now and then. 
Um, and then obviously the monastery has the divine office in the traditional rite, uh, the mass in the traditional rite every day in my apartment and put it on my blog. So anybody who wants to see how fantastic it is can just go there and take a look at it. Um, but it's like, a, it's, it's really hard to describe why it's so wonderful. It's like another world here. It's like another world. And then you have access to not only to the traditional mass, but you have access to the office. Full divine office. Uh, the monks open the door of the church at 4 o'clock in the morning for uh, vigils, and uh, they have the divine office eight times a day. So this is, I mean, literally as close as you can get to the Benedict option. I think... I have probably taken the Benedict option <laughs> but as more far as it can than go. any other person on earth. Oh, except there's one really nice Australian priest who moved here who was actually the monk's first oblate, very first one when they first found it. And he has also realized what a great place this is, and he just bought a place here. So maybe I'm not the only one, but yeah. But I mean, so this is this is it for you, right? This is the last stop, as far as you know, on the faith train here. As far as I know, physically, I'm not going to leave this place. In fact, my friends find it difficult to pry me out to come down for visits. Um, spiritually, I, I'm still. I feel almost as though I'm just at the beginning of the road. I'm finally at the place where the road starts. Yeah. Which is crazy. I mean, look how long yeah. it's taken you, and what a winding road, and now you're you're beginning the journey. But uh, I mean, obviously, all of these things that went before clearly were a preparation for this. So I, I was here for a few months. The um, situation in the church just became more and more grave, and this idea, certainly backed up by my spiritual director at the monastery, started to become much more clear in my mind which is writing about the disaster full time as a news reporter is not what I'm supposed to be doing and some months ago I went down to Rome for a conference and met all kinds of really great people serious minded Catholic pro-life people and I, and I did the stuff and Every conversation I had, every hand I shook, every talk I listened to, the refrain in my, God help me, I'm about to use this word, in my heart <laughs> was, um, you should go home. You should go home. This isn't for you anymore. This isn't, this isn't your role. You should go home. And there you have it. Yeah. So now... I went home. <laughs> now you're and I, home, and you look back at Rome, and what do you think? Oh, it's a nightmare. I think Rome is... Okay, I don't like big cities. I don't like traffic. I don't like crowds. I don't like tourist towns. I don't like heat, and Rome is a lot hotter in, in temperature than Norcia. Mm -hmm. I don't like Rome's chaos, and Rome has really sunk since the last time I was there. Um... You know, the news reports are that the infrastructure is becoming even more unlivably chaotic than before. There's this huge influx 
of um, Muslim immigrants from North Africa that are, it, when I was there, you hardly ever saw um, what you see at Heathrow, which is, you know, people walking around in burqas and stuff. Mm-hmm. Now you're seeing this. Just, it's really changed in a very short time, really, since, since I came up here. And so I don't like it anyway. I don't like Rome and never have. Always hated Rome. Monsignor Barrero desperately tried to get me to move to Rome, and I said, no, I know he loves the city, but no, never, never. Um, um, but I, I look back on Rome now, and it just seems like the seat of chaos. Hmm. It, it seems as though chaos is enthroned in that city. And you've told me that you have advised the friends that you have who are still there that they need to leave. I'm desperate to get my friends, the people I care about, out of there. And and I'm not being apocalyptic here. I'm not thinking in terms of, you know, ISIS dropping a bomber or something. I'm just it's getting to the point where the city just no matter what you're doing there, it just isn't going to be good for you. It isn't going to be good for you spiritually, mm-hmm. emotionally, physically. I, 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 yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to make any crazy predictions, but because you know, don't want to sound like a crazy person. But basically, you don't but, have a good feeling about staying there. In the Star Warsian sense, yeah, I got kind of a bad feeling about this. <laughs> so. Let me ask a question about something we all have a bad feeling about. <laughs> Go ahead. Today is September 4th. The Synod begins a month from today. What oh, do we expect? What do we expect? And you're not going to be covering it, so how does that make you feel? But, you know, what are we looking at? <laughs> I, I probably will be, I mean, certainly I'll be paying close attention. Honestly. Well, I know you will because the train wreck is pretty hard to look away from, but not in an official capacity. Okay, now I have used this analogy, metaphor, analogy, many, many times. Most of the time I have used the the asteroid to refer to something that has already hit the church, which is Second Vatican Council and its aftermath. And I sometimes use it more broadly to include the sexual revolution in the secular world, and sometimes expanded even further out than that to start at the First World War and just say that modernity, modernia, is the asteroid. Some terrible thing that happened to the Western world, Christendom, uh, in the 20th century. The Synod, maybe it's because of my, what I do for a living or what I used to do for a living, um, but the Synod seems to me like the Asteroid 2.5. It seems that the people who wanted the Church to go in a particular way, and the world to go in a particular way, after the Second Vatican Council were frustrated by a, a pontificate that they couldn't control. Mm-hmm. Two pontificates that they couldn't control. And the things that they wanted to do, that they had engineered at the Second Vatican Council were unfulfilled and have been unfulfilled for the 50-year period between then and now. It seems now that they believe, and they've certainly not been shy about saying it, that this period now 
they're going to be able to get what they want. Yeah, and, and I mean, it does it, seem yeah. to me that that the, this synod is directly connected to what happened leading to up to and after Humanae Vitae. I mean, this is all of a piece. This is the revolution. Um, uh, it's in Italian, but uh, obviously Google Translate will help us. Um, Cardinal Caffara, one of the good guys, who's the Archbishop of Bologna, gave an interview in, let me think, Il Folio, basically laying that out, saying, this is the revolution. This is the final triumph of the revolution in the church. Mm-hmm. And they're using the Synod and using this Pope, this pontificate, to get what they want. You're noticing that I'm not saying Pope Francis is doing X. This is not about Pope Francis. Mm-hmm. This is about the revolution in the larger sense. He is part of it, probably. There are a lot of pieces in play, there's though. A lot of pieces in play, and they really know what they're doing. Cardinal Casper gave an interview where he basically came right out and said, Hey, you know that thing we engineered about Humanivite, how the document came out and then it just didn't matter? That's pretty much what we're planning for the Synod. So yeah. it doesn't matter if the Synod, with the words, reiterates Catholic doctrine. It doesn't matter. We're just going to use this in the same way that Humanivite was used, in the same way that Second Vatican Council was used for the revolution. So they're, they're not making any kind of secret about what they're intending to do. So I... I'm starting to call the Synod the Asteroid 2.5. I think it's a reasonable And obviously term. the reference is to the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. <laughs> Given what happened in the church, it's a pretty good analogy, I think. So, yeah, and I guess the question then is, what do we do about it? Well, that's when we start talking about the Benedict Option, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, and where are we in November or December of this year? I mean, does this play out fast? Is it more subtle? Is it the kind of thing that filters down through, you know, the the mask of bureaucratic action, or is it something that's more direct? And I think that it's impossible to predict, but something. It's something. And it, it's going to be not a good thing. Something unacceptable is going to come. Sure. So what in this situation I ask myself is our duty? Well, how is it different from any other age or any other situation? What is our duty? Our duty is keep the faith. Mm-hmm. Our duty is pursue personal sanctity. Um, and it took a long time for me to figure out that religion is for what the Orthodox and the Eastern Rites refer to as divinization, sanctity, to become the person that God intended you to be at any cost, at any cost at all. It's the, it is the only possible goal for a Catholic who takes the faith seriously. And you'll notice that it's not a political goal. It's not an external goal at all. The situation, the situation is going to be external. The situation is often uh, driven by politics. But what is your duty? Well, it's the same as it always is. Well, that's true. But how how people, I think, are able to continue doing it when many of the resources that they are accustomed to begin to diminish or disappear. Mm 
accustomed to. Now, it's very interesting that you put it that way exactly, because the resources that they are accustomed to are not necessarily the resources that they absolutely need. Because what you absolutely need to fulfill the plan of God for you, your life, your vocation, which is obviously, as God help us, the Second Vatican Council made clear, the personal vocation of holiness, Mm -hmm. it will be provided to you. Even if it turns out to be something like what the Japanese experienced after the expulsion of Christianity. Even if it doesn't involve priests or the mass, which, quite honestly, even without the Synod, even without the asteroid, is a very real situation for a great many people. The mass is getting hard to find. Yeah. I had to leave England. Uh, I think... Basically because well i think that the the uh the effects the beneficial effects of samorum pontificum are beginning to with, withdraw and retract i don't think so uh, i i think that it is i think that you're going to see i mean there are going to be places where it continues to flourish i mean there's going to be pockets but you hear about masses disappearing more than you hear about new ones that's true um but don't forget how the news works but uh, also um the benefits of Samorum Pontificum are going to be there for us to claim when when we need them. Um, this or that individual mass being suppressed is not really the issue. It's that there was a recognition, finally, that there was something seriously wrong in the church and that suppression of the traditional right was part of it. And one of the things that frustrated me when I first started taking the faith more seriously many years ago, was how determined the official voices in the church were to continue smiling and clapping and pretending that everything is fine. One of the things that the the, uh, Pope Benedict pontificate gave us was finally to have uh, an official acknowledgement of a crisis. You you may not remember, but during John Paul's reign, the official line was, everything's fine, there are mm-hmm. no problems. Right. And then, of course, the sex scandal happened, and that put paid to that. But then it became, oh, well, the official problem is is all about sex. Right. Benedict came along and said, no, the official problem right. is all about the faith and the expressions of the faith, which is where the liturgy comes in. Well, with... Time running short and your audio continuing to degrade here over these many thousand miles that we are separated by. Um, I want to wrap it up, but I want to ask you just one last thing. What would you say? Because I know that you haven't always been in favor of the Benedict option per se, but now that you've taken it to its logical terminus, I mean all the way to the last train station, what would you say to people who are considering it? (laughs) I think it was pretty clear that it was the option that I was being that I was being called to personally at that moment. I would say that it's not necessarily going to be the 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 call for everyone to do what I did. Um, leave the big city, come and live in this rural community, um, pull back from direct involvement in the situation, the public situation. Become my my goal is to become 
totally devoted to um, a life of liturgical prayer. And um, I have started painting, as you know, and uh, hope eventually to make my living as a painter so that I can live, uh, I guess, a semi kind of lay aeromedical life here. Obviously, that is not going to be what everybody's called to. Right. Obviously. But I do think that um, this situation in the church is going to be a call for everybody to make radical decisions. A little while ago, I wrote a thing that got published in The Remnant, and some commenters underneath said, yes, but the nearest mass for me is X number of hours drive away. Mm-hmm. And I didn't say it, I didn't respond to it, but I think I'll say it now, which is, we're in a situation now where you have to decide what your priorities are. Is your priority your salvation? Is it your job or your salvation? Because if it's, if your priority is eternity, then the answer is you must have the mass and you yeah. cannot live without it. Yeah. And therefore, move. Pack up and move. And if it means getting a job, in Dairy Queen, do you have Dairy Queen in the United States? Yes. If it means giving up your job as a lawyer and working in a fast food restaurant so that you can have the sacraments, the time has come where we're at that stage. Consider your um, your eternal salvation above every other consideration. I think it's and, sound advice. Well, Not easy advice, but I think I think you're right. Yeah. And it's a lot to chew on. In fact, I found at several points during this conversation making my own mental notes about things that I've been considering. Oh, like what? I think that's for another episode. You're not. <laughs> and actually, the thing that we didn't get to talk about that we'll have to save for another uh, time would be how we go about saving Catholic culture. But let's, let's survive 2.5 first. Yeah, well, we've only got another month to find out what's going to happen. It's exciting, though, isn't it? We have to pass it to find out what's in it, as we say. You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated. Copyright 2015. All rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. That's www.1peter5, all spelled out, all one word, dot com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash 1peter5. If you feel we've provided you with something of value, please hit our donate page and make a contribution. It not only helps pay for web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on our tables, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helps us see what we're doing. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.